Okay, so let me just give you the context of what we're going to talk about today, if you've not been here every week. So last week, Jesus was arguing, or he was casting out uh, a demon who was oppressing this guy. And Jesus heals this man and sends the demon away. And then the, the, the leaders come up to Jesus, and they say, or they start not coming up to Jesus, they start spreading the rumor. Oh, well, okay, yeah, he's casting out demons and healing people and doing all this stuff, but he's doing it in the power of the devil. Right, in the power of Beelzebub. And so um, <clears throat> Jesus responds to this criticism by talking about what kind of sense does it make for Satan to, to fight his own kingdom? Like this whole thing, your, your argument is ridiculous. And then he kind of gets into it with him. So this text today and next week's text are kind of continuations of what had happened in that initial, you're casting out demons in the power of Satan. Jesus now is in conflict with some of these religious leaders. Now, normally the way a sermon works, I actually have a book on my shelf all about sermon introductions. And in the book, what it says, guy spent 200 pages to say this, right? Book could have been an article, a blog post, you know what I mean? Anyway, what it says is your sermon introductions need to be something that really grasps people's attention and creates a need of urgency within them. And then during the sermon, you answer that problem that you've created. And that's usually a pretty good idea. Today, we have 500,000 verses to cover, so we're just going to jump right into it. And I'm going to skip the sermon introduction with the fancy philosophical something, or here's something from the New York Times, or you know, here's a cute story about me and the girls. We're just going to get right into this text. So you've got the context, and hopefully we'll get out of here before the Niners play, which is tomorrow night. Um, If you were wondering, that's how much verses we have. All right. (laughs) Um, Verse 27. uh, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who uh, hear the word of God and keep it. So as he's in the middle of this sort of fight with these guys about about his healing and his power and his authority... Um, this woman in the crowd cries out, uh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed, which was basically just a first century way to say, man, I bet your mom was dope, right? Like, I bet you had a cool mom. If you turned out this great, I bet your mom was amazing. And lucky her to have such a great son is what, is what this woman was saying. Now, um, who's Jesus's mom? Mary. Okay, yeah. You guys know? You've read the beginning of Luke? Okay, good job. Um, now, I want to just do a quick, very quick side note that we'll get in. We got into, I think, at the beginning of Luke. And uh, anyway, we'll probably talk more about this in depth later. Um, when we talk about Mary specifically, I think there's sort of two sort of poles that have happened. So in the Catholic Church, they uh, treat Mary uh, almost like she's like the fourth member of the Trinity. They pray to Mary. They say that she was sinless like Jesus. They have this whole doctrine about Mary that is completely over the top and I think like wholly unbiblical. And so what happened with Protestant churches was we, we went, oh, well, we don't like all that stuff that these guys are teaching about Mary, so we're going to pretend like she sucks. You know, <laughs> I mean, we're almost going to ignore that out of all of the women in the entire history of the world, God was like, I want that one to be my mom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, none of us get to pick our moms except for God, and he picked Mary. Mary was pretty cool. She wasn't perfect, right? We see times in the ministry of Jesus that she didn't really seem to know what was going on. And her image of what Jesus was supposed to do was probably heavily influenced by her first century 
Jewish upbringing and the idea of a political Messiah. And, you know, she didn't get the whole picture, but she still got more than most people. And her, we talked about it in Luke, but her attitude when God came and was like, hey, the angel came and spoke for God and said, I'm going to ruin your life. You're going to have this kid out of wedlock. Everybody's going to hate you. Your life in this culture is over. And she was like, okay, cool. Right? As, a, as a kid, basically. She was a, a young teenager. So Mary is amazing. Maybe not the sinless person that we pray to, like the Catholic Church thinks. So this woman comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I bet Mary was really cool. And look what Jesus says. He kind of says, yeah, but. So he's not saying, no, she wasn't. The people that are cool are the ones in the kingdom. That's not what he says. He says, yes, she is cool. Right? That's kind of how that could be translated. But he said, blessed rather. What That rather means, yeah, she is great. But even better are those who do two things, who hear the word of God and keep it. So both of those sides about the word of God are pretty important. The first thing is you have to actually hear the word of God. Now, <clears throat> was it last week I was talking about the, my new favorite video with the 10-minute Bible hour, uh, that guy's kid. You remember this from last week? So the, the kid basically just listens to the book of Matthew every night before he goes to sleep, and he's become sort of a Matthew expert. Like the dad was testing him and just reading part of a verse, and the kid would finish the verse. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, so I've been thinking about this kid a lot. Um, and as I, was list- as I was reading this, I was like, oh, that's a great illustration, right? Is We should all be like that kid and ask ourselves, do we actually hear the word of God? Do- have we organized our lives in a fashion that we can take in the word of God? Now, you're thinking, isn't that what I'm doing right now? I could be at brunch, <laughs> right? Yeah, okay, that's true. But I'll tell you this. A single 45-minute sermon per week is not enough Bible intake. You need to be absorbing the Word. Hopefully, you're all still doing the reading plan that we're doing together, and uh, we'll be finishing up. Hopefully, you're thinking about these texts, and you're taking notes in your little books, and you're writing things down. So the first thing is you got to hear the Word probably more than you do. The second half, though, is then when you hear something, you have to actually go out and do something about it. Um, A lot of theologians know the Bible inside and out, and then don't have absolutely no change in their lives. And so a probing question, let me ask you this. Can you think back in your life, where in the last couple of years has the Bible changed your mind about something? If that hasn't happened, you're probably in some trouble, right? You should be able to think of at least something where the Bible has challenged your worldview, challenged your behavior, Something that you thought, oh, that's okay, you were doing, and then as you read more scripture, you're like, oh, man, this actually isn't that great. Um, To really apply the Bible, we need to sit underneath it, and we need to say, Lord, speak to me through your word and change me using your word. Okay, so Jesus says, yeah, my mom was great, but even better are those people who hear the word of God and do it. Now, what he's going to do is he's basically going to say, Let me tell you about some guys who don't hear the word of God and do it. And sorry, he's going to talk a lot about the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And we're going to get kind of a picture of what we should do and what we shouldn't do with regards to like religion and God's word. So the first thing that he says is you should read your Bible and especially the Old Testament and make uh, and look at it with Jesus as the central figure. Even the Old Testament, Jesus is the central figure. So look what he says here. Um, Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. 
For as Jonah became assigned to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man uh, be to this generation. So the crowds are increasing and growing and growing while he's arguing with these religious leaders. And our natural instincts would be as church people, as crowds grow and churches grow. Okay, how do we keep these people? How do we keep growing? How do we flatter them? With Jesus, he almost seems to take the opposite approach. He says, I'm going to get so harsh with the truth that only the real believers are going to stick around. That seems to be his, only the people who, there's a great book by a guy named Kyle Eidelman called Not a Fan. And what he says is the American church is full of people who aren't, Jesus is not their Lord, but they're fans of Jesus. And what we see consistently through the Gospels is Jesus sort of pushes those people away. And he says, look, I don't want you to be here and be a fan. I want you to be here and for me to be your Lord. And those are two very different things. And so this is what he does. He looks at this group. The crowd is increasing. And he says, you guys are evil. (laughs) This generation is evil. Why is it evil? Because it's looking for a sign. So the word generation there is repeated a bunch in this passage, meaning it's important. And he's basically saying, you people standing right in front of me are evil because you're asking for a sign. If you remember last week, we talked about this, that what they're doing is they're looking at all the amazing things that Jesus is doing. You're raising people from the dead. You're casting out demons. You're healing uh, people who can't walk. You're healing deaf people. You're doing all this amazing teaching. They look at this wonderful work of Jesus and they go, what else you got? Right? Prove it. Give me a better sign than raising somebody from the dead. And if you remember the story of the widow at Nain especially, that happened in front of probably a thousand people or more, right? The feeding of the 5,000 happened in front of 20,000. Like a lot of people saw this stuff and they come to Jesus and they say, you know, uh, we want more. There's, and we, haven't you ever had that thought? Lord, if only you could prove it to me a little bit better then I would believe a little bit more. There's a story, um, uh, <clears throat> a parable that Jesus tells where he says, there's, there's these two guys. There's a rich man and there's a very poor homeless guy named Lazarus. And they both die at the same time. And they're in eternity. And uh, the, the rich man is complaining to Abraham about how hot it is and everything, you know, and uh, how horrible it is. And uh, Abraham says, well, you know, this is, you're getting what's coming to you, buddy. And he's like, okay, that's true. But at least let me go back from the dead and tell my brothers about it so that they won't end up where I am. And Abraham's answer is, dude, they already have the Old Testament. They have the Bible, right? And so the idea is, a lot of times I think we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, I need more from you. And Jesus' answer is similar to Abraham's. Guys, you have the scriptures. You have these stories of me raising the widow's son at Nain. You have Lazarus' story. You have a different Lazarus from the one I was just talking about. You have you know, all these miracles, right? But this is what these people are doing, not just with the Bible, with Jesus right in front of them. And so Jesus says, I'm not giving you guys any more signs except for the sign of Jonah. Now, what was he talking about? Well, in two different parts of, uh, in Matthew and in Luke, he explains the sign of Jonah differently. So in one, in Luke here, uh, the sign of Jonah is more like, um, uh, you know the story of Jonah, right, from uh, Veggie Tales and from the Old Testament? Um, <laughs> Jonah is a prophet who says, Basically, uh, I don't, God says, go tell these Ninevites about me. And Jonah's like, I hate those guys. I'm going the opposite way. Right? He gets on a boat. The boat's, you know, the, there's a storm. The sailors throw him over. He gets eaten by the whale, spit up on the shore. 
he goes to Nineveh, and then everybody repents. That's the quick version. We actually read in the English service, I don't know if you guys remember, we read the book of Jonah together. Okay, it's a very fascinating little book. So in the first sense of the sign of Jonah, what Jesus is saying is, I'm assigned to you like Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh. Meaning, Jonah showed up, probably all cut up and covered in scars and burned skin and everything from being in the, um, the stomach of a great sea monster is actually what it says. It was probably a shark, if you remember, we went over this uh, in the English service. But anyway, it, he probably didn't come out of it unscathed. And he walked up and he tells the people of Nineveh his story. And they go, oh, wow, look at this. And they were people who believed in the supernatural and they all repented. That's the first sense. In the second sense, Jonah in the whale, he go, or the shark or whatever it is, right? The j- jellyfish, who knows, uh, right? He goes down and then comes back up. He goes down in the, the sea monster and comes back up and survives. And that's the story of Jesus. He goes down into the grave and he comes back up. So in... in Each gospel, he kind of tells it in a different sense. But the basic idea is the same, um, that you have this story from the Old Testament that you should look at and see me in it. And you should understand what it is I'm doing because you have this pattern and this picture. He keeps going, verse 31. Sorry, clear my throat. He tells another story from the Old Testament. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus now is referring to a story that pops up in 1 Kings 10 and in 2 Chronicles 9, if you want to write that down, where Solomon was this great king and he was known for his wisdom because at one point God came to him and said, Hey, Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon says, Okay, this is what I want. I want to be wise. Because I'm terrified of being a king of your people, and I know I'm not good enough. And God says, wow, good answer. Because you didn't ask for riches and fame and all this other stuff. I'm going to give you the wisdom, and I'm going to give you all that other stuff. And so he was this great king who had some issues, even with his wisdom, right? But he was known for all sorts of scientific stuff and poetry and all this stuff. So he he became famous. And uh, a queen from Africa, the queen of uh, Sheba, you know that's where we get that phrase from, the queen of Sheba. um, She comes on a very long trip to come and hear Solomon. And so you can see Jesus' point. When, uh, when Jesus compares her to the people of this generation, the difference is glaring. She traveled a long way at risk to herself to seek out the truth. She heard Solomon might know something of the truth. I'm going to find this guy and I'm going to ask him what's up. These people have Jesus in front of them. The way, the truth, and the life Right, the ultimate Solomon, and they go, eh, I don't think so. Not only are they not finding him and traveling to find this truth, the truth came to them, and they go, I don't want any part of this, right? He's evil. That's what they say. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the greater version of Solomon. How dare you reject me and reject this truth? And then he swings the story back to Jonah. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So again, the story of Jonah, he walked in, and actually, here's the truth of the story of Jonah. He was a terrible preacher. He walked in, he goes, you're all going to burn, and God's coming for you. And he turns around and he walks out. And they all repented. Right? These people of Nineveh were evil. If you remember some of the stuff that I talked about from if you were there when we did Jonah, it was brutal. I mean, these guys, uh, these Ninevites, these Assyrians... 
um, they, like one of the things they would do is they would capture, you know, um, uh, they would defeat a city. They would take all the guys from the city, take them out into the desert, bury their heads in the sand, stick their tongues out, stake them into the ground, and then just leave them to die. Right? These are the people that Jonah walks up and says, God's going to judge all of you guys. And they all repented, not all, but most of them repented and turned to the Lord. It's amazing. And so Jesus says, with less information and more evil behind them, even these guys repented at the, the truth. And here you are asking, what else you got? We need more proof, Jesus. We need you to be a better savior. And so his point is the same as with the story of Solomon. Jesus says, I, and this is how we read the Old Testament. He says, I'm just like the, the greater version of Solomon. I'm the greater version of Jonah. I'm the sign that you guys are asking for. And if the guys from Nineveh were here, they would be so mad at you right now for not repenting. Right? They'd put a bar of soap in a tube sock and they would beat you to death with it. That's how mad they would be about this attitude that you guys have of rejecting the Savior. So that's our first idea, right, is that as we read and hear the Old Testament, we do that by looking for Jesus throughout the whole Bible. And the Bible is our version. We don't have Jesus standing in front of us, but the scriptures are our version of this sign. And he gets into that next when he starts talking about uh, the second idea is that we, as we look for Jesus, um, the scriptures and his truth lights our life up. Right, so next he gets into this whole bit about the light. He says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a, uh, in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful le- lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, have no part in the dark. It will be wholly bright. Uh, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Okay, so here's the thing. In the scriptures, there's a very common picture that we see of the idea of light and darkness, this, this play between light and darkness. Um, Psalm 28, I'm sorry, Psalm 1828. For it is you uh, who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. Or uh, Jesus adds to this theme. Uh, in the book of John. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, what Jesus is telling these, these people demanding a sign from him is, you guys already have the light right in front of you. And what do you do with the light when you have it? You cover it up. It makes absolutely no sense. All right, so let's ask the question, though. Why are they in the darkness? Well, if you're in the darkness, there's only two reasons that that could be, really. One is there's no source of light. Okay, you're in a room, there's no lights, it's dark. The second reason is because there is light, and for some reason, you're, you can't see it. Right? You're blind, you're covering it up, you're covering your eyes up, or whatever. And that's kind of what's going on here. Um, imagine for a sec, uh, there's a kid, let's say, she's maybe four years old, and she does something wrong. And the parents go... To discipline the kid. Look at, look at what you did, uh, kid who's not named one of our kids. Look at what you did to the thing here, you know. And they go like this. They cover their eyes. Can't see, right? Or we've had, can't hear you, right? I mean, I'm just kidding. No, no, our kids would never do that. Our kids are angels. Um, right? Th- that's kind of what they're doing here, right? Look at, look at what you're doing. And they go, I don't want to look at the light. I don't want to see. 
Or imagine, like, if you did that as an adult, that would be even more ridiculous. You go to the doctor, and you don't know anything about medicine because you're like me, okay? And the doctor is trying to explain the part of your arm right here that's broken. That's never happened to anybody. Uh, that's right here. And, uh, <laughs> and he's like, okay, here's the bones, and he, he, he gets out his little model. And you go, I don't want to see. You'd be an idiot, right? And that's what Jesus is saying, is this is what these people are doing. They're covering their eyes as Jesus gives them the truth, and then they're complaining that they can't see the truth. right? It, it, and he says, look, guys, this doesn't make any sense. Translating this to our context, right? Our, our covering up our eyes is what Jesus said at the beginning, with hearing the word of God and doing it. The way that we cover up our eyes and we ignore the light is by ignoring the word of God. Right, the word of God is our light that leads us to Jesus. Right, you know this psalm, right? Um, One nineteen, one hundred five. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or the same idea from Proverbs. For the commandment, you know, he's talking about the Old Testament, is a lamp and a teaching light. Right, this is the way that we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus by looking to His word as a light unto our path. Now, when the Bible then. As we look at the light, I'll say, as the Bible lights up the path and teaches us about the things of God, what it does is it points us to Jesus and it points us to his glory. But here's the thing. A lot of folks will take the Bible and instead of it being a light to Jesus and about his glory, they use it uh, for their own personal gain and their own glory and their own power. And they use the Bible completely wrong. They use religion for the wrong Purposes. Instead of it being about God and glorifying his name, it's about me and how great I am. And this is the next thing that Jesus gets into. Is He says, so uh, first he says, look for me throughout the Bible. Second, he says, use the Bible as a light. And then the third idea is don't use the Bible to prop yourself up. Right? Don't use the Bible uh, as, um, as something that makes you feel, look how great I am. And look at everybody else, look how great I am. It should not be an, an instrument of pride. It should be an instrument of humility. And he does this next by arguing with the Pharisees about how they practice their religion. So let's look at this. Verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and he went and reclined at the table. So this is actually really interesting. Um, when in conflict with the Pharisees, Jesus still loves them. Um, Dining with somebody in this culture was kind of a big deal. And it was a very intimate thing to accept a dinner invitation like this. And Jesus does with a guy he knows is trying to get him. Right? And so uh, Jesus shows up at the dinner. But um, I have a friend who likes to say things to see what your reaction will be. Like he says something purposefully a little bit controversial. Not because he believes it. Because he wants to see how you're going to react to it. And he loves to, like, sit in that tension. And Jesus is not going to say something false that's controversial here, but he's going to speak some truth. But also, he's going to sit in some tension. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about my friend. He probably loves this passage. All right, verse 38. So the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Dinner. Okay. Imagine for a second, and this would never happen except that it's happened, Uh, (laughs) is you invite me over for dinner and I come over for dinner and you put the food down and then I take a huge bite of something and then you say, hey, pastor, would you like to pray for dinner? (laughs) And I go, yeah. You know, chew, 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 swallow. Okay, let's pray, right? That's sort of like a, 
a very small version of what's going on here. So let me give you the background. To understand what's really going on, you have to understand the history and the background of the Pharisaical movement. Um, In the Old Testament, the people of God completely ignored uh, the heart part of what God was asking them to do. They did some of the outside stuff, but basically they turned away from God. They embraced other religions and other gods, Molech and Baal and all these other gods, right? And so God gave them warning after warning after warning, and they completely ignored his law. And then he said, all right, fine. I'm going to send you guys in a timeout. A 70-year timeout. This is really making light of something that was very serious. But a 70-year timeout in the land of Babylon. So they go for their timeout. They come back after the timeout. And the Pharisees were a movement that popped up as the people of Israel, after the exile, started thinking to themselves, how can we make sure that this never happens again? How can we follow the Lord in a way that he actually wants us to? And so what they did, the idea was, not only are we going to uh, follow the law and interpret it very strictly, we're going to add extra rules to the law that create like a buffer zone. So not only are you not going to break the rules over here, you're not even going to get close to it because you have to follow all of these extra rules. And uh, what happened, though, was that buffer zone, they started treating it like the law. Right? And as we read in the Gospels, we'll see um, of Jesus is constantly pressing into their interpretations of Scripture because they're enforcing these extra biblical things as if they're part of the Bible. And as Jesus fights with these Pharisees, we see a few things. First is they constantly use religion as a source of pride and a way to prop themselves up. Second, they use religion in the Old Testament and their extra rules as a way to knock other people down because when they're lower, it makes me feel higher. And third, they start treating that buffer zone more important than the actual gospel of the Old Testament, right? The good news of the covenant of God with the Old Testament people. So fast forward now to Jesus. He shows up and, (coughs) sorry, Um, he shows up dinner with the Pharisee and they had these insanely long ritual washings. You would pour it on twice and you would wash it and then you would dry it and you would do it again and like depending who was doing it they had different rules but um, they had this very elaborate ceremony and everybody starts doing the ceremony jesus sits down picks up some to eat and starts eating it and everybody starts to lose their mind right and here's the thing though jesus wasn't breaking any old testament regulations or rules what he was doing was breaking the buffer zone he wasn't following their buffer zone And so by this time, that ritual hand-washing, they were treating it like it was part of the Old Testament, and it wasn't. And so when he does, they were shocked, is what it says. Now, here's the major issue. They are taking something that they have added to the law, and they are enforcing it like it's the Word of God. Right? They're forcing other people to obey their extra stuff. So imagine for a second that I had a serious drinking problem, which you guys know I don't even really drink hardly ever. Um, although it is funny, once uh, at my old church, somebody came up to me, and there was a rumor going around that I was an alcoholic. And I was like, that's so funny, because like, I don't even, I can't remember finishing a beer in my entire life, you know what I mean? Like, out of all the, the rumors to spread about me, right, the, all the things you could say that are true, you pick this one. Anyway, so imagine for a sec for our illustration that I have a serious, serious drinking problem. And so I decide to quit drinking. And so at my house, I don't keep beer, because the temptation would be too great. And, um, but what if I decided that because I have a serious drinking problem, you guys aren't allowed to have a beer either, right? And then I find out that you guys all got together 
for a, a 49ers game where they got whipped. That's what's going to happen tomorrow, by the way. So if you want to hang out and watch the Niners get stomped tomorrow, uh, you can get together have a beer. What if I found out you guys had a beer and I stood up in church and said, oh, you guys are all going to hell. I can't believe you drank a beer. You know what I mean? That's kind of what's going on here. It's sort of what happened in, with Prohibition in the 20s as well. But like, that's the idea here is there's nothing wrong with a Pharisee saying, you know what, I'm really concerned about ritual purity. And so I'm going to just constantly do this ritual hand-washing thing because this is important to me, and I want to please the Lord, and I think this is a way that I can do it. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, and you need to do it too, right? And, and if you don't do it, and you come over to my house, I'm going to be absolutely shocked. So look, Jesus then jumps into this with them. He says, and the Lord said to him, uh, to the guy, the Pharisee, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So Jesus accuses them of greed and wickedness. He says, look, do you guys see the irony here? You spend all your time washing your hands thinking this is what God will love while the inside of you is rotting away. And he says, you think the outside is all that matters? What about the inside? In the similar passage, right, in Matthew 23, Jesus uses the illustration of whitewashed tombs. He's like, look, you're taking a tomb and you're, you're painting it and it's beautiful on the outside. But what's going on on the inside is a dead body is rotting away. He says, that's what your spirituality is like. You look real nice on the outside and on the inside you're rotting away. So what should they do then? He says, but give alms to those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So this is kind of a weird little saying. Uh, He says, basically, it's a way, give alms is like giving to the poor. So it's a weird phrase. He says, give poor to the stuff that's on the inside of you. Basically, what he means is work on the spiritual life. Work on the stuff that people can't see. It's just as important as the outer life. The whole idea with moralism which is the, 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 the belief that by my actions, I can earn God's love and I can earn my salvation. And that my salvation is dependent on my behavior. And in moralism, everything is transactional. If I do this, God owes me this. And that's how a lot of these Pharisees were thinking. Motives in their faith don't really matter. It's, um, uh, they only cared about the outside. They should have cared about the inside. It's just like in the book of Isaiah. Um, let me flip through here. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, In the book of Isaiah, there's a similar section where Isaiah is railing on the people. God, through Isaiah, is railing on the people. This is what he says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have enough of your burnt offerings and of rams and uh, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings, incense. Uh, Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, this is what, um, the same thing that was happening in the book of Isaiah is happening now. You guys think that all this outside stuff is what matters to God. And a lot of the things in that list from Isaiah are things that God told the people to do. Bring these sacrifices, bring me the fat of these bulls, do this stuff. And they were doing the stuff that they were supposed to do without the heart. 
And God was like, I don't want any part of this. When you pray, I'm going to close my ears. And when you say, you know, I'm going to shut my eyes up. I'm not listening to any of this stuff because your heart is not in it. And so um, I'm going to give you a long list here. And then I'm going to show you the actual list at the end. And it'll be on the website and stuff. It's in the U version here. But we're going to make a list now of the ways that the Pharisees use religion for their own glory. And we're going to try to learn from this, right? So the first one is they clean up the outside uh, because that's what people can see while they let the inside, the part that only God can see, completely rot away. That's what we learned. That's our first point. All right, keep going. 42. Um, he says he, he, he does a bunch of woes, right? So the word woe is just a prophetic language that kind of means, wow, sucks to be you. Right? This is not going to go well for you. Woe is you. So he picks up that language, Jesus the prophet. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe and mint and rue, Uh, uh, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. So it's kind of a hilarious image. You're tithing 10% of your herbs. right? So you imagine you go to Safeway. You buy one of those things of herbs. I don't know what's herbs. I don't cook. But you know, okay. Melissa buys a thing of herbs. By the way, the other day I wanted some cinnamon for some applesauce. It took me 20 minutes to find it. I didn't know where it was in our house. Um, anyway, <clears throat> imagine that. You get a thing of, um, I don't know, what's an herb? Give me one. Sage. Sage. All right, I don't know what that looks like. Is that a little green ones? Okay. Something smaller. What's a small one? Parsley. Parsley. All right, yeah, you dump it out on the thing, the table. Okay, there's a pile of herbs. You get a little credit card, right? Okay, one for God, nine for me. One for God, nine for me. And you pour it back in, and then you take these down, and you put it in the offering box at church, and then the offering smells good, right? Okay, just kidding. That's what these guys were doing. That's very meticulous tithing. But Jesus says, look, guys, you're doing that when nobody asked you to do that, and you're ignoring justice, which is exactly what God has asked you to do. Right? To love justice and mercy. That's what the Old Testament says. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do this one, but not this one? And I'll tell you why, which gives us our next point. How do they use religion for their own glory? They ignore justice because it's actually hard. And they tithe herbs because it looks hard. And that's the point. This one looks really good with not a lot of effort. It's just annoying. This one is actually hard and costly. And so they don't do it. And God says, that's showing you, Jesus says, that's showing you what's in your heart. Is This is not actually about a changed heart that you have. This is trying to earn a changed heart with the bare minimum. And that's not going to fly. So he keeps going. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> I got a frog in my throat while I was singing, you know. <clears throat> can't get it out. I'm not sick anymore, I swear. Like last week, I was hacking up a lung. Just kidding. Um, All right, verse 43. There we go. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. So um, I read a lot of books, you know, and so basically whatever book I'm reading, you guys are going to hear about a lot. And now I'm in the middle of this three-part book. It's a Winston Churchill biography called The Last Lion. And it's a massive thing. I mean, I'm listening to the audio book. It's like 150 hours or something. It's going to take me a while to get through. So I'm in the middle of the second volume. And I learned something about British politics. So they have a parliament system, not a Congress like we have. And in the parliament system, the party that's in power all sits on one side of the bench. And the other parties all sit on the other side. 
and the seats super matter. So in the very front, the, the cabinet ministers and all those guys sit in the very front row, and then some of the very important uh, ministers sit next to them. And then in the back are the people who are part of the party but less important. And that's where, if you've ever heard the term backbencher, that's where this term comes from. The seating arrangements, it made me think of this, were very important because a lot of Churchill's life, he got moved to the back bench, and it was like a big deal for him. Oh, you know, he's a very proud, arrogant, uh, well, anyway, not that great of a dude, uh, who couldn't stand to be on the back bench. You know what I mean? He had to be in the front, and eventually he becomes a prime minister and saves the world from Hitler, which was great. Thanks, dude. Um, I don't know. I actually haven't gotten there yet. I think that's what happens. Um, but sitting on the back bench, he really hated that. That's the Pharisees. Right? It wasn't very different for them. The seating arrangement in the synagogues were very important. And the most important people sat in one part, and the least important people sat in these other parts. And the better your seat, the more important you were socially. And James actually gets into this in the book of James, where he tells the people of God, quit acting like that. Right? Like, how dare you get somebody who's important and sit them up front? Right? And then the person who's poor and homeless, you sit them in the back. He's like, this should be the opposite way in the kingdom. So, that's our next idea. How do they use religion for their own glory? They use the synagogue services as a tool to prop up their own social standing instead of as a way to worship God and be closer to God. So, like, imagine if here we were using this to make ourselves feel better instead of as a time to get together as God's people and worship. All right, keep going. 44. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk on them without even knowing it. Okay, so this verse is super weird. Um, and super, well, it's kind of hard to explain. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read to you from the ESV Study Bible, which is one of my favorite study Bibles. Their note very succinctly hits this on the head. The third woe compares them to unmarked graves. And according to the Old Testament law, coming in contact with a grave made a person ritually unclean. You know, in the, the Old Testament system, you're unclean. But if a grave was in the ground and it had no marking, people might walk over it and become unclean without knowing it. Likewise... People who are following the Pharisees, they're deceived, for they become unclean before God without even knowing that the Pharisees have led them astray. So what he says is, you guys are so messed up that the people who are following you are like people that walk over these unmarked graves. They're accidentally becoming unclean. Um, they're, not, they're, they're accidentally learning the wrong things. And so the next idea, how do they use religion for their own glory? For their own glory, the, these leaders mislead Uh, other people in matters of faith for their own pride and for their own glory. Verse 45, one of the lawyers, one of the scribes also said, answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Okay, this is hilarious. It's like when you're a kid and you're sitting around with your friends and one of your friends is making fun of your other friend and you're laughing at him. (laughs) Ha ha, he's making fun of you. And then you realize something he just said applies to you too. And you go, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) That's not fair. (laughs) You know, it was funny a second ago, but now you're talking about me. So the scribes start listening to this. And a lot of the scribes were Pharisees and there was some crossover, right? Those two weren't mutually exclusive. And they go, hey, wait a minute. That's me you're talking about. So they try to get in Jesus' face. And Jesus says, oh, scribes, you want a piece of this? Let's dance. Verse 46. And he says, woe to you lawyers or scribes. Like, lawyers not in the legal sense here, like the religious legal sense. They interpreted the law. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves, you don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So they load people with these burdens. The job of the scribes was to interpret the Old Testament law and help people understand it. 
right? They were the ancient version of pastors, basically. It's very similar to what I'm literally doing right now as I'm explaining these verses to you. And um, when you look at the story of the gospel, from a biblical perspective, it's freeing. This is wonderful news. The word gospel means good news uh, in Greek. And so as you hear this wonderful news about how we broke the world, but God put it back together and offers us salvation by grace through faith alone. As we hear this wonderful news, you should feel a sense of a burden being lifted off of you. When the scribes taught the people about the things of God, they didn't feel a sense of a burden being lifted. They felt the sense of a burden being placed on them. I could never do this. I could never live up to this. This is not going well. And here's the ironic part, Jesus says. You're burdening people with all this stuff that you don't even do yourself. Right? These scribes were burdening people in ways that they weren't even willing to participate in. And I think the way that this worked was they created all these loopholes for themselves. It's like the guys who write the tax laws. <laughs> you know, they never pay taxes, right? Because they wrote the laws. This is what these scribes are doing. There's actually a section um, in one of the other gospels. In, um, it's in Mark chapter 7, where uh, these, these guys are, Jesus is railing on these guys because this is what they did. There was a rule in the Old Testament that you basically had to take care of your parents when they got older. Okay, so in Western culture, we don't, we don't really do this. We stick our parents in old people homes and we visit them at Thanksgiving, right? But in Chinese Eastern cultures, right, um, from what I can tell, you guys actually take care of your parents when they get older. That's an Old Testament thing, right? That's a Bible thing. That's how they did it. And so there was this rule. But a lot of these folks didn't really want to do that. And so what they did was they, they came up with a loophole. Well, you can dedicate your stuff, all of your belongings to God while you're alive. You can still use it. And when you die, it goes to the temple. But what that means is you can only use it for you. You can't use it for your parents anymore. So your mom goes, hey, I have to get a hip replacement. And you go, oh, sorry, all of my stuff's dedicated to the church. When I die, I can't let you have any of it because then I'll be robbing the church. So sorry, mom. Right? That's what they were doing. They created this loophole so that they didn't have to participate in the things of God. Imagine for a second, right? You, you guys know I talk a lot about the Pabst Blue Ribbon thing. Pray for people, ask them about their lives, bless them in ways nobody else would, share the, your story of faith with them, and talk to them about the gospel. I've joked, right, that I'm going to beat you guys to death with this um, Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff, and I'm going to. Now imagine if we're praying on a Wednesday night and we're talking about our Pabst people. John, how have you been doing, somebody asks. And I go, oh, I don't have to do that. I'm the leader. I just have to lead you guys in doing it. Hopefully, somebody would call Neil, right, who's our district superintendent, or just, you know, I don't know, punch me in the face or something in front of everybody. That would be an awful thing for me to say to our people. That's exactly what these guys were doing. So how did they use religion for their own glory? They burdened other people with all this religious garbage that they weren't willing to touch or go near. Right? So they, had, they threw these burdens on people. All right, the next woe is kind of longer. Uh, 47 through 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets who your father killed. So you are witnesses, and uh, you consent to the deeds of your father, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. All right, here's the deal. 
you went to history class when you were in junior high or whatever, and you learned all about the Nazis. And here's what you said to yourself. I would never have been a Nazi. Right? Those guys, they were really bad. That, that's not me. Right? I'm good. They're bad. Right? And that's kind of how you, you thought about history. But have you ever really thought about that? If you were German in the 1930s, would you have been a Nazi? Okay, I actually had a lot of German international students live at my house growing up. And I asked one of them, were your grandparents Nazis? And one of them said one of them was, and the other one broke his leg to get out of being in the army. Slammed it in a car door. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thought. Would I have been a Nazi? Now, with my upbringing and my pride to live in this great country, no. I don't think I'd be a Nazi. Would me and my sinful heart put in a different context with a different upbringing have been a Nazi? I don't know. I hope not, but I, I can't say for sure because I know that I'm fallen and I'm sinful. And that's kind of the way that, not how these guys were thinking about the Old Testament. See, they were reading the Old Testament and they were thinking, I'm the good guys. I, I'm, I'm always one of the good guys in the story. They identify with, the, the, with David or uh, you know, one of the heroes of the story, not with the bad guys. I'm not Ahab. I'm not you know, these wicked kings. I'm always the good guy. And Jesus says that that's foolish because here's the thing. It was your, your grandparents that killed all these prophets, and now you're pretending like they didn't. You're pretending like you would have been one of the good guys. And if you think about the timeline of this, when this happened, the last Old Testament prophet had just been murdered, like within a year, John the Baptist. And they could almost say, how many of you guys stood up for John the Baptist? None of them, right? You guys all let John the Baptist die. You assume, you read the Old Testament, you assume you're the good guys. And now you have a chance to be the good guys and you don't do it. It's pathetic. And Jesus says, so that's sort of the next way you use religion for your own glory, to inflate your own ego and not as a path to humility. When they read the Old Testament, they assume that they're the good guys. All right, the third woe, the last woe, is verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Okay, so again, I think it's no surprise, because I talk about it a lot, that I like history. I read a lot of biographies and books about history and war and that sort of stuff. Um, So let's take a major event from history from recent history. Let's say uh, the internment of the Japanese folks here on the West Coast during World War II. Uh, You guys know Tamferan was one of these places, right? Um, And as great as World War II was, I read a lot of books about World War II. The world would suck without World War II, you know, without our soldiers and our folks going over there. But that doesn't mean we have all clean hands. We have this horrible part of our history with the internment of these Japanese folks. Now, if I was a U.S. history teacher, I would be a pretty terrible teacher if I got up and I talked about World War II and I didn't mention the internment of Japanese folks on the West Coast here in the United States to people who, whose grandparents, basically my grandparents, were part of the generation that fought the war but also stood by while this happened to the Japanese folks. So if I just completely left it out, that would, be, that would make me a bad history teacher. But what if, what if I said... Oh, yeah, this actually happened. I'd be practically a criminal if I told the story this way. Yeah, we put the Japanese folks in camps, but most of them had a great time and they were happy to serve their country. Right? Okay, now not only am I a bad history teacher, I'm an awful history teacher because none of that is true. That would be an absolute lie. That's kind of, there's two levels here. There's leaving stuff out and there's teaching falsehood. And that's the level that these guys who were supposed to be teaching the Old Testament, 
and supposed to be talking about the grace of God and supposed to be leading people into joy. And what they were doing is they were doing the exact opposite. Right? They weren't just leaving stuff out. They were teaching falsehoods. And while I love history, and I, I think it's very important to study our history, uh, history is small potatoes compared to talking about matters of faith and spirituality. And so Jesus here is really throwing down the gauntlet on these guys. Your job is to teach people the scriptures and to lead them into faith and to grow in the gospel. And not only are you refusing to do that yourself, you're keeping other people from the truth. You're teaching them falsehoods. Being a teacher of God's word is a heavy burden. And for anybody who takes it seriously, it should feel that way, right? You guys know my tattoo that I have on my arm? It's James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. There's a reason I have that tattooed right here on my arm. You want to see? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to take my shirt off in the middle of a sermon. Um, Everybody throwing up in the aisles, it'd be a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> so that, but the reason is because it's a serious burden. And these scribes have taken on that burden and then just completely botched it because it makes them feel better to do it the other way. So how do they use religion for their own glory? This is the next one. They keep people from the truth to keep themselves in power. Right? They, they need to be the ones in control. They need to be the ones in power. So they leave people in the dark. And so with all of this, Jesus hammering the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you. You killed these guys. You didn't teach the truth. You're hiding the light. You're doing all this stuff. How do you think they responded? Right? Do you think they responded like the Ninevites? Oh my gosh, that's so true. This is exactly what we're doing. We should all repent and become followers of Jesus. And the book of Luke ends. Right? Is that what happens? No, it's not. Look at the next verse, obviously. Uh, and he went away from there. The, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying uh, in wait for him to catch in him something that he might say. I watched a video uh, last night um, when somebody wouldn't go to sleep, and it was like four in the morning, and I was sitting in my bed trying to get her to go to sleep. And I was looking at Reddit, like I always do, and I saw a video of a lion chasing a gazelle or something. Okay, and it's chasing the gazelle, and it's chasing it. And the gazelle thinks it got away. And then all of a sudden, this lion jumps up out of nowhere and tackles it, and they eat it, and it was delicious. Okay, so what happened in the video was that one lion was waiting, lying in wait. Right? And so the gazelle was thinking, I'm running away from this lion, but what was really happening is they were running towards the other lion. That's what the Pharisees and scribes are trying to do here to Jesus. They're trying to get, they're fuming. Jesus has publicly called them out. And instead of hearing him and repenting, they plot to get him. It shows the depth of the evil that's within their hearts. So the last one, how do they use religion for their own glory? They try to stamp out the gospel because it rubs them the wrong way. That's what they're doing with Jesus. I'm going to get, instead of responding to the gospel, we're going to get rid of Jesus. All right, so let's wrap this up then. Our fallen minds, our fallen and our sinful hearts will constantly revert towards this works-based religion. This idea that our behavior is what makes Jesus love us. Our behavior is what gets us into heaven. If you ask any non-believer in America... What do Christians believe? Most of them will say, if you behave a certain way, you go to heaven. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And that's the essence of the Christian religion. And it's not. That's the essence of every other world religion. In Islam, they have scales. And they weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. And that's how you get into heaven or not. 
Um, in most other religions, it's about what's something that I can do to fix the problem, to get to God, to become God, to connect with God, whatever it is. It's, but it's all based on what do I do. And that's not how the gospel works. But in our fallen and human hearts, we constantly revert back to that. We revert back to, I got to do something so that God can love me. So how does the gospel speak to this? Well, here's the thing. Jesus was a man, and he was a man of God's word. He was a man who loved God's word. And if you remember at the beginning of Luke, we talked about the nature of Jesus and how he really was human. And he wasn't born as a baby who knew the entire Old Testament by heart. He was a kid, and he grew up, and he was fully God and fully man, but he grew up learning the scriptures, and he sat in his synagogue where they probably had a copy, scrolls of the Old Testament. And he would sit there, and he learned how to read, and he would read this stuff. And remember in um, Jerusalem, when he was 12, he was arguing with the, the leaders, uh, in the, in, in, um, not arguing, like learning and debating with these guys. And he, as he grew up, and as he learned scripture, he perfectly submitted himself. You want to talk about hearing and doing the word of God? Nobody ever did that better than Jesus. But as he grew up and as he learned the word of God, something started popping off the page at some point in his life. He will be pierced for our transgressions, right? This, all these parts of Isaiah that start talking about the crucifixion specifically and talking about as he reads about the Passover, he starts to realize, I'm the true Passover lamb. Jesus learned this truth and he had to then Submit himself in the power of the Holy Spirit to that truth. And his death and his resurrection, his death especially, is the ultimate example of a human being surrendering to the will of the Father. And you can see him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will. Father, not my will, but yours be done. That's Jesus perfectly hearing and perfectly doing the word of God. And because of that, then we are brought back to God. We are saved. And that has a massive impact on our hearts, our fallen hearts, our fallen beings, our souls, our minds are renewed and sanctified and made more like Jesus each and every day. And we're saved by grace and not by works, right? All of this stuff, this renewed heart, this renewed mind, this freedom from the penalty of sin, the entrance into eternity, all of this happens because of what Jesus did and not because of anything that we do. And what that means is that nothing that you can do absolutely nothing that you can do to prop yourself up will have any impact on your salvation. Nothing. Except for accepting Jesus in faith and letting him be your savior. It's like walking to the moon. Think about it. Could you walk to the moon? Nope. Can't do it. Now, could you get closer to the moon than some people? Yeah, you can climb up a mountain, up a hill. Hey, look, I'm very close to the moon. You're still not going to be able to walk to the moon. And that's how people who try to earn their salvation are acting. Look at me. I'm a little bit closer than that guy. Okay, you still can't get there. You need a rocket that's going to carry you there. You need somebody else to do all the work. And that's what Jesus does. He comes along and he carries you to the moon. And so when that happens, when we're saved, we're given this new perspective and we're changed forever. And part of that is our love for God's word. Um, And so right now, though, we're in this state where we're still battling our old nature and we constantly return to sin and we return to our old master. And so one of the things that we do here at the porch that's super important is you're constantly going to be hit, no matter what passage we're in, with basically the same gospel message. 
You're saved by grace and not by works. Because your mind is broken still, and you still return to, I can do something, I can act like a Pharisee, and God will love me a little bit more. So let's go through our list. Look at this. And let's talk about this with the gospel. The first thing, how do these Pharisees, how do, I saw a cartoon this week that was like, um, the Pharisee, it was like one of those, I was on Facebook or something, Christian cartoon. And in one panel, it was like a Pharisee looking down at somebody. I'm so much better than him. And then it was a guy reading the Bible about the Pharisees going, I'm so much better than those Pharisees. Right? We can be Pharisees about the Pharisees. You know what I mean? So instead of doing that and saying these Pharisees were terrible, which they were, we could, maybe let's say, isn't some of this in all of our own hearts? And how does the gospel, how does the gospel approach these things? So how do we look for our own glory, right? How do we use God's word and use our religion for our own glory? This was our first one. They clean up the outside because that's what other people can see while they let the inside, right, the part that only God can see, rot away. But here's the deal. Since you don't have to earn your salvation, it doesn't matter what people think about you. You can be messy in church. You can show your whole mess, right? How you can show what your life really looks like because you don't have to look good to be saved, They ignore justice because it's hard, and they tithe herbs because it looks hard. Well, since you don't have to look good again for salvation, again, you don't have to keep up your appearances. And you can do the hard things that are right, even if you know nobody's going to see them. Because either way, it doesn't affect your salvation. They use their synagogue services as a tool to prop up their own social standing instead of as a way uh, to worship and to be closer to God. Okay, here's the deal, though. Because you're saved by God and brought into his family, in eternity, you already have the best seat in the house. Nothing that's going to happen here on earth is going to give you a better social standing than being a son of God, son or daughter of God, being a child of God adopted into his family. So then what that means here is you can be humble and it doesn't matter where you sit. It doesn't matter your social standing here because, again, that stuff has nothing to do with your salvation. Next, they burden others with their religious garbage that they won't go near. Well, because of grace, we don't have to add to the Bible. It, there's not a, see, their idea was, here's all these things God says that we can do to be saved, so let's add to them. And that doesn't make any sense. There's no point in adding to something that doesn't even impact your salvation at all. They use the Bible to inflate their ego and not as a path to humility. But again, because your salvation is not based off of how great you are, you, you can be humble. You don't have to worry about being great. It doesn't matter if you're great. Because Jesus is, and you don't have to be. They kept people from the truth to keep themselves in power. Well, because Jesus loved you enough to give up his power to die for you, you can give up power now to love and to serve other people. We don't have to be powerful. We just have to be loving. And then the last one, they try to stamp out the gospel because it rubs them the wrong way. I hope the gospel rubs you the wrong way. Because the gospel rubbing you the wrong way is like sandpaper, right? That's how I hope it happens. I hope it's getting rid of the hard part of you that shouldn't be there. And so if the gospel at times doesn't rub you the wrong way, I don't know if you really understand the gospel. If you come to the Bible and it's not challenging you in ways that you weren't expecting, then what are you doing here, right? Like, what are you doing with the Bible? And so I don't want us to be Pharisees, and I don't want us to look at the Pharisees, you know, because I know that that stuff is in our hearts. And that's not who I want us to be. I want us to be people of grace. right? People who understand this wonderful gift that we've been given. And that we don't deserve it all. 
right? There is nothing we deserve except the damnation of hell and the judgment of God for eternity. But somehow, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, he came down and said, you know what? I'm going to save those guys. I'm going to die, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey the word of God so that they can be saved. So let's not add to that gospel. 